This is a Clark University podcast. I think it's important to make a distinction between fast violence and slow violence. So conflict is very easy to represent visually. It, it is shocking, it tells, it is evocative, it tells a story, correct or not. And it's sort of easy to represent uh, in, different, in different mediums. Once a fast conflict, like what is happening in Ukraine right now, becomes a slow conflict, it becomes chronic and protracted, it becomes much harder to represent in a way that people can understand or care about. So slow grinding poverty, malnutrition, children denied education, lack of maternal health care, uh, the ways in which people find it difficult to reproduce their culture and language over time. That often happens when you're trapped in a refugee camp for 10, 20, 30 years. That slow violence doesn't grab people and it's very hard to keep them interested. That's Ken McLean, a professor at Clark University's Strassler Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies, where the history of crimes against humanity and their consequences are at the core of student and faculty research. Violence has dominated the news since Russia launched a war in Ukraine in late February. Headlines and social media posts have showed civilian deaths and refugees fleeing in the hope of finding safety. In a roundtable discussion moderated by Mary Jane Rain, the executive director of the center, McLean and Professor Francis Tanzer analyzed the documentation of the ongoing war and how people experience a crisis in its acute phase compared with chronic events. This is Challenge Change, conversations to challenge your mind with people who are changing our world. Welcome. Um, thank you both uh, so much for being part of this conversation today. So given these brutal bombing campaigns against civilian targets, um, there are, as I understand it, already efforts underway to um, go about prosecuting um, Putin for war crimes in the International Criminal Court. And that entails a documentation project. Can you comment on, you know, I know each of you in your work um, look at knowledge production, archive formation, et cetera. Can you comment a little bit on how you collect evidence um, and how that might be happening um, in this conflict, um, in this conflict um, with regard to refugees, with regard to uh, documentation projects um, using uh, satellite imagery and, and so forth? Francis, why don't you start and say a little bit about how refugees themselves can participate in this archival process. I, I want to highlight something which I find really interesting also in, the, in this context, um, which is that uh, sites of documentation and research in Ukraine have also be become sites of refugee aid. Um, so for example, the Lviv Center for Urban History in Lviv um, has become and has, has in, I mean, in the past weeks, has uh, transformed their conference rooms, their workshop spaces into spaces uh, to accept refugees. I think that it is very important when documenting refugees to pay attention to and documenting their lives and experiences to pay attention to processes of transit um, rather than fixating on the point of departure and arrival to actually um, 
really pay heed to uh, maybe a long-term process of transit, their own journeys, but also thought through their responses to being displaced. And so I think that this is really key when you're studying people who are on the run, on the move, um, to pay attention to uh, process rather than destination um, or, or departure. Great point. I'm going to add uh, something slightly or complementary, I think, and that is it's useful to distinguish, although in reality they're not as separated as I'm making them here, between external and internal documentation. Mm -hmm. External documentation, like satellite imagery that's been being collected by the U.S. and other governments uh, to document troop movements and so on and sites of destruction. What you are seeing, and this is hardly unique to the Ukrainian situation, a lot of social media documentation, images and so on being captured, short videos being uploaded. And that can be tremendously useful, but it's also very difficult because it's a form of what is known as spot reporting. Uh, and you really need to make that useful to capture the metadata of when the image was taken, who it was taken by, at what time, at what angle. There needs to be a chain of custody to ensure that it's actually not been manipulated, that it's been handled appropriately and stored by being entered into a case file that the ICC, the Office of the Prosecutor, is putting together and so on. So for this to be admissible as legal probative evidence, uh, it's unclear how much of that crowdsourcing will actually end up being used in an eventual trial should that happen. It is nonetheless very useful for generating public opinion, generating support, and providing leads to professional human rights documenters to say, we want to target this massacre, that attack, and so on in specifics because you can't cover it all. You really need to demonstrate a chain of command to prove command liability, that is to hold certain commanders responsible for the actions of their subordinates, and then much less try and follow that back up all the way to Putin. In a broader way, all of this documentation, of course, it's important for a trial, but it's also important for the historical record, for scholarship, um, which um, I think is really important to think about too, and, I, and that relationship between the event and scholarship um, is uh, really key and also I think makes us think about documentation a little bit differently than if we're thinking about it primarily for a trial. Um, in that case, what's crucial is to, um, I think, document everything. Um, and to really pay attention to testimony, but to also have a broad definition of what testimony is. So testimony can be these uh, videos that are posted on Twitter, um, sometimes short videos, but it can also be a novel or a poem. And um, it's often in those places where people might say things or uh, talk about events or experiences that they would never talk about in materials that are associated directly with them, materials that are autobiographical. And so I think that as scholars, we also need to pay attention to all of these other sources too, fiction, poetry, painting even. I completely agree, but there's often a disconnect between 
what scholars, for example, find useful in looking back mm -hmm. or people find useful in terms of truth commissions after the conflicts mm -hmm. have ended and so forth. With the general frustration by ordinary people that they're producing all this, what they conceive of as evidence, why can't something be done with it? And there's a disconnect, again, if you're thinking in legal terms, which many people are in terms of prosecuting Assad, the Syrian archive, is a massive archive that contains all this stuff. And people wonder, well, why haven't persons A, B, C been prosecuted when there's clearly all this evidence? And they don't understand how international legal mechanisms actually work. So there's a need for education. People need to understand the limits of what they're doing while also recognizing, Francis, as you were saying, the benefits of doing what they're doing for other purposes. There's, there's, there's not enough understanding out there, and understandably so in conflict situations like Syria or Ukraine, um, how this information might be used. They're just busy trying to survive. Speak a little bit about how we document and narrate humanitarian crises like this one. Uh, it's a really interesting question and a hard one to answer when you delve a little more deeply into it. On the one hand, uh, it's an easy narrative of, of uh, Putin's invasion. He obviously stands in as the enemy in the media, general, generally speaking, in the Western media. And then there are the poor, innocent, elderly women and children who are fleeing as victims. And then you slot in the brave, heroic men and women who have chosen to remain and fight. So it fits Western narratives of um, the savage victim savior uh, type very, very nicely. It's an easy story to tell because they're clear, clean heroes and villains. Uh, but in terms of documenting it, it's so much harder because much of the documentation is from either afar uh, because they're relatively limited people on the front lines and you have pervasive misinformation and disinformation. So trying to get an accurate picture of what is happening beyond the surface remains remains very difficult. Can you comment, Francis, just in general, how these kinds of um, documentation projects usually occur? I know in your work you've dealt a lot with refugees. Um, what do you see as similar and different here? I think that, I mean, I'll, I'll echo Ken that the challenge of documentation is is pretty profound in refugee contexts. I mean, you also think about people fleeing and the challenge of preserving documentation and keeping a record. Um, in other historical epochs, this was a, a grave problem um, because records were on paper um, or through photographs and so on. In this context, it's a little bit different because um, it's much easier to create a record on social media. Um, so I think that this changes our relationship to documentation during a refugee crisis. It also makes it easier to spread disinformation. Um, but one other point that I wanted to raise, which I think is really important in this context, um, and also thinking about the framing of the war in Ukraine, is um, that there has also been a lot of civilizational language um, in the Western media. And I think that it's really important to pay attention to this. Um, I'm thinking in particular about the CNN reporter who towards the start of the invasion mentioned that um, Ukraine was relatively civilized and relatively European. Um, 
something like this. I'm, the language might be a little bit off. And I think that this is really important to pay attention to, also because of Russia's long history in this re region, which is a history of uh, imperial ambition and colonialism. Um, so when Putin, for example, said on the eve of the invasion that Ukraine does not exist, um, he's uh, echoing what is a very long history of uh, colonial ambition in the region, which tries to undermine the boundary between Ukraine and Russia. Um, and it's a history that is shot through the Tsarist regime, the Soviet Union, and now the Russian Federation. Um, so because of that, I think it makes it particularly important to make a great effort to listen to voices on the ground and to listen to people who are fleeing Ukraine and also people who are remaining and to really take seriously um, how they present the event um, with all of the challenges of doing that also in mind. Another aspect to this that, Francis, perhaps you could comment on, and that is about how we experience a crisis in its acute phase as compared with chronic um, events um, like what's happening in Syria and um, in Burma. Can you comment at all about um, how that impacts what, um, you know, the patience of, our, of the audience um, for these atrocities? I teach a class on refugees, and when we were talking about Ukraine, I pointed out to them that I had actually never taught the class when there was not a refugee crisis in a very acute phase taking place, and I asked them to reflect on what that says about our world. And I think that what's uh, interesting is that when you use the language of crisis, it's a way of potentially displacing, um, displacing the events, displacing the process that's unfolding or the violence that's unfolding from our own world. In this case, we have uh, wars and violence which produce refugees, and we also have um, very stringent uh, borders which also produce refugees and turn this into um, a sort of an ongoing crisis. Can you work on Burma, where the conflict has been simmering for, what, 50 or more years? 70 years. Uh, 70 years, and where you have uh, a context with dozens and dozens of different ethnic groups. What role does the media play um, in, in a failure to represent these conflicts? Um, because they're really hard. They've been going on for a long time, and they're extremely complicated. And, you know, the Western audience just doesn't have a grasp of it. So, you know, the media is not doing a very good job of representing these conflicts around the globe. Um, are they doing a good job in Ukraine? Perhaps it depends on your point of view. I mean, you've partially answered your own question, and that is in the context of Burma, Myanmar. The conflicts are so long-running, long-standing, varied and complex because of so many different armed actors and competing interests and factions and so on and so forth, that you almost have to be a country expert to make sense of it all. Whereas in Ukraine, I think, broadly speaking, as I said earlier, you have on the surface a simple story. You've got a villain, you've got a victim, and then it's the question of what the international community can do to help protect or support people fighting to maintain their independence, their culture, and their language, and so on. So on the surface, Ukraine seems simple, 
but if you want a meaningful end to it, you have to take into account many more things than is commonly spoken about in the media. You know, I've been thinking a lot about um, our gaze from afar uh, on this refugee crisis and all of the concern and attention that's been paid to these European refugees. But of course, you work on uh, a region of the world where our gaze has really largely been averted. Can you comment on um, why this is different um, for Europe than for Southeast Asia, where we really have the experience of the Rohingya refugees has been um, kind of, we've been shunted away from it? It's really quite different in some respects. And that is, um, as Francis put it, there's a debate about inclusion. That is, who belongs where? And the imperial project uh, of Russia is to say Ukraine doesn't exist. Rather, it is historically a part of us. Whereas there is a contrasting debate that uh, Ukraine is sufficiently European-like that it is impossible to envision including them in the EU. And there's uh, that kind of debate. Whereas in the Rohingya case, it was very much an uh, exclusionary conversation that these people, in fact, do not exist. They're illegal immigrants from Bangladesh. They're, in fact, called Bengalis. The word Rohingya is prohibited. And that they're seen to be illegal immigrants, and therefore it is perfectly acceptable to use mass, large-scale violence, state violence, to push them back into Bangladesh, where they theoretically came from. And then you've got also um, what I might call experience near and experience far that it's easy to imagine a relationship with the Ukrainians. In fact, we have large Ukrainian populations in the United States who are speaking out on behalf. They are our brothers, our family, and so on. Whereas no one really speaks, or very few Westerners speak for the Rohingya because they don't have those diasporic networks to mobilize resources to keep them in the public eye and to uh, demand support for the refugees and people in the country who still face violence. There's, of course, Francis, you know, when we talk about Ukraine uh, and this region of Europe, we're talking about a very bloody place. Um, could you comment for us about um, the successive waves of refugees that have um, characterized this region of Europe throughout the 20th century and now the beginning of the 21st? So I, I want to just add one more point to sure. what Ken was speaking about, and then I'll answer the question. Um, but I, I think it's really important to make a connection between slow violence and fast violence um, because they're almost they're, they're always interrelated. And one way to do that is to focus on uh, individual stories of refugees too, to focus on uh, stories who, of people who are maybe not even falling into the category of refugee um, but have been displaced. Um, or have experienced dispossession in some way. Um, and if you start to focus on their lives, then you can start to understand the way that these cycles of violence impact their possibilities for the future, their children's possibilities, um, their sense of their own experiences. So this is a region that has experienced um, really a, uh, over the course of the 20th century, a, a pretty radical demographic revolution um, across World War I, um, the civil wars that followed, um, 
even before that, this was a region uh, that was uh, that experienced a number of pogroms, um, anti-Jewish pogroms that caused um, many, many Jews to flee um, and to go, in that case, uh, westward um, and sometimes also eastward. So that's the difference from today. Um, and then it's also the region where uh, much of the violence and killing of the Holocaust took place. In the current context is that Ukrainian Jews are um, associating themselves and linking themselves to the Ukrainian nation, nation. So they're espousing Ukrainian nationalism in this current context. And I just want to highlight how impossible it would have been for a Ukrainian Jew in the beginning of the 20th century to imagine a Jewish president as well. Um, so I think that this also shows us um, how transformed uh, Ukraine is from that early 20th century uh, version of itself, um, but also from the version of Ukraine that we think of during the, during the Nazi period too, um, from that anti-Semitic violence. Um, at the same time, we still see the racialized logic. I wonder if you could comment, Francis, on how you see the past informing the present um, in the case of Ukraine. It's such a good question, and it's actually a really challenging one to answer. And the reason why is because there are manifold ways in which the past is informing the present in this context. Um, so I spoke previously about Ukraine's history of anti-Semitism um, and about its history of coexistence um, between Jews and non-Jews um, and all of the peoples who, are, who have lived in this region. I also think that um, what's interesting is if you think about a place like Lviv, for example, um, this is a city which has experienced uh, successive waves of um, of deportation, of uh, refugees fleeing, of war, of violence. And so the city is then the product of, of those experiences. Um, and they're marked in the city in different ways. So you can see the city's um, history as part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and its ar architecture. You can also see um, the Soviet era history of the city marked in the architecture, um, as well as in the population. Um, so I think what's, what I'm getting at is that all of this history is actually very fresh in people's minds, and it's in their family experiences as well. Um, so when uh, these events are unfolding over the past months, well, as this war has been unfolding, um, it brings up uh, discussions of uh, this fraught past in the region in different ways and often in very intimate ways for people who are fleeing or people who are staying in a city uh, like Lviv, for example. Well, thank you. This has been really, I think, a very rich conversation and I appreciate the opportunity to have you each reflect on your own work in light of what's happening in the world today. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. To learn more about the Strassler Center at Clark, visit clarku.edu slash centers slash holocaust. Challenge Change is produced by Melissa Hansen and Andrew Hart for Clark University. You can find other episodes wherever you listen to podcasts.